uh, let's pray as we come uh, to God's word together. Uh, Our gracious Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. You're the God who longs that we would know, trust and enjoy you forever through the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray, help me uh, speak clearly and faithfully as I should and help all of us to respond and trust Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you'd please give us. And what we are not, you would make us by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, have you ever been stuck in traffic for what seems like an eternity, getting frustrated by the waste of time and seemingly endless lines of cars, when uh, a car or a motorcycle flies down the bus or emergency lane and then continues on their merry way? Uh, It happened to me just this last week on Fitzsimmons Lane. And it's frustrating, right? Infuriating as you do the right thing and then they just fly off without any consequences. Or when someone cuts in right before you at the lights to get onto the freeway waiting rather than waiting in that long queue like you did. It's one of those rare moments that you wish the police were there. A moment where we long for justice. Now, if you've had that frustration or that longing, uh, there is a very satisfying YouTube channel uh, of dashcam footage where they do get caught. And it's so satisfying as you hear the cheers from drivers as the flashing lights turn on and justice is served. And while this is a somewhat trivial example, this longing for justice has clearly been on display since the tragic death of George Floyd. As people took to the streets in protest with widespread grief and anger, and countless more stories of abuse and injustice have followed. Yet what has followed has also shown us how our longing for justice in this broken world is so fickle. Protest has led to riots, riots to looting, theft, vandalism, and either further acts of violence. The distinction for us is so often a very blurred line between justice and revenge. And the Christian is not immune from such questions. How often has the phrase, where was God? been on the mouths of victims or thrown at Christians when an individual or community suffer? And how often have we ourselves asked this question when we see or are victims of injustice? Well, Psalm 110 that we've just heard read comes as one of the pieces of the puzzle of the Bible's definitive answer to that question. Uh, In fact, the psalm deliberately follows and answers Psalm 109, where David cries out in distress to God for justice and vindication from his enemies. Uh, David cries out, and then he finishes the, uh, the psalm in verse 31 with a statement of confidence that God will act and answer him. David is confident that God will do this, and Psalm 110 comes as the glorious yet surprising answer to how that will happen. And this is such a good and important psalm for us to wrestle with. It is the Old Testament passage that is most quoted by the New Testament. It's on the lips of Jesus as he explains his identity and mission. Peter quotes the psalm in that first sermon at Pentecost, and this psalm is extensively used in the book of Hebrews, as the author implores Christians to keep trusting Jesus because he is better than anything else and worth following even if it's costly. The psalm takes us from Genesis to Revelation, 
as it expands our understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he is doing, and what he will do when he returns. So it's important that we've prayed and asked for God's help because we need to do some hard work and heavy lifting in God's word tonight. And the psalm begins with an important introduction, that this is a psalm uh, of David. Remember those titles are part of the actual psalm, uh, and it could just simply mean that this is about David, or it's even to David. But as we're going to see shortly, Jesus himself tells us that David wrote the psalm. These are the words of Israel's greatest king. Which actually makes his opening statement in verse 1 so surprising, even baffling. David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David functions as a prophet here as he writes down the words, the oracle of the Lord. But that's what's so confusing. As David says, the Lord, remember, that is Yahweh. Remember when you see L-O-R-D, all in capitals. It is the personal covenant name of God himself that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And then so David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, but who is greater than David himself that he should call him Lord? How can this royal king speak of one who's greater than him other than God himself? The king that David speaks of, he has an extraordinary, a very unique identity in the psalm. Uh, on the one hand, he's clearly a human king. Uh, he's a Davidic king that comes from Zion in verse 2. He takes a drink in verse 7. He's a priest in verse 4. He is strengthened by God to fight in verse 5. So he's clearly a man. But on the other hand, and although he's distinct from God, he seems almost equal to God. He sits at God's right hand in verse 1. In verse 2, the Lord wields the scepter, but it's the king who actually does the ruling. And of course, in verse 4, he lives forever. A God himself and this king are presented as equal, working and acting together almost as one, to the point where we're left asking, who is he? Is he human or divine? And this question continued for a thousand years, as no king, not even Solomon, lived up to such a description to the point where the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day still had no idea what to make of this king. Now, in Mark 12, Jesus is getting interrogated by some Jewish authorities. His reputation is rising. He's gaining influence, and they don't like it one bit, so they seek to publicly trap him in his words. They ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. They question him about the resurrection, which seems so illogical to them. And they grill him about what's the greatest commandment. And Jesus knocks it all out of the park. He floors them with his wisdom. And then pauses to ask them his own question in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, that's our psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. How can the Messiah, God's promised anointed king who everyone knew would be a son of David, as God promised in 2 Samuel 7, also be David's Lord. 
And this question, this confusion, this ambiguity, all comes into glorious focus through the apostles that King Jesus is the answer. We heard it in Acts 2. As Jesus has died, risen, now ascended into heaven, he's poured out the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches that first sermon and declares in verse 34, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and then he quotes Psalm 110, and he concludes, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This king who is divine yet human, is so clearly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. As God the Son, the eternal word takes on flesh, making his dwelling among us, becoming a man. And that phrase that David uses in verse 1, to sit at the right hand of God, is consistently used in the New Testament for Jesus. I've given you just some of, I've given you just some of the references in the handout. That Christ is seated at God's right hand, it shows that he's greater than David in Acts 2. He's greater than the angels in Hebrews 1. It's a sign of his exaltation by God the Father, even though he was rejected by man, Acts 5. It's the basis for his ongoing intercession on our behalf in Romans 8. And it also signals the completion of his sacrificial work in Hebrews 10. And just as David says in verse 1 of this psalm, that the risen Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, shows that he is still waiting for the surrender of all his enemies in Hebrews 10 and 1 Corinthians 15. That the King David points to and longs for is gloriously fulfilled in Jesus as the God-man who rules. And so what David says in the rest of the psalm unpacks the kind of king he is. And what's super clear is that he is the king who conquers. Uh, in verse 1, God promised that the king would have victory. It's certain and definitive. He is to sit at God's right hand until his enemies become a footstool. Now, I think we often might think of something quaint here, like an ottoman that we put our feet on. But it's actually a picture of total domination and control over your enemies. You've got your foots on their neck. Uh, you can see an example in Joshua 10. His future victory is certain in verse 1. That's the point. And in verse 2, as the Lord strengthens him, he even rules in the midst of his enemies. It's a stunning picture of this king surrounded by those who hate and attack him, yet he's in complete control and continues to rule and achieve his purposes. The language is actually very similar to that of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And isn't this the picture we get of Jesus? who came to his own, the world he had made, only to be rejected, hated, crucified, yet all the while working out the salvation that he had already planned. That as he rules and saves from the cross that they nailed him to, all was happening as was foreordained by God's purposes. 
The king rules in the midst of his enemies as the Lord strengthens him. But in verse 3, we're also told that he has a willing army. Uh, one of my favorite movies has got to be Avengers Endgame. And there's this climactic moment uh, in the movie as Captain America, he's beaten and exhausted. And he rises from the ground to see Thanos and his mighty army before him. And as he looks at this great multitude, uh, and he's hopelessly outnumbered, suddenly there is a, a flicker of his radio. And there begins to appear reinforcements as thousands of troops, some of our fan favorites, start to appear. It's the part of the movie where you let out a little squeal as Captain America says, Assemble. Now, there's a similar scene in Lord of the Rings. As Minas Tirith is overrun and all hope seems lost, the army of Rohan arrive in such great numbers that they cover the mountains. There is just something enthralling, even majestic, about a mighty army marching into battle. But neither of these nor any army have anything on the troops of this king. Look at verse 3. Uh, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The king rules in the midst of his enemies through this army that aren't compelled or enlisted. They are devout and willing. They are like the dew of the morning's room. That is, they're, they're lively, they're energetic, they're always fresh. And they aren't equipped with swords or shields, but godly character. They are arrayed in holy splendor. Now, this is actually an attribute of God himself. And so these willing, these energetic troops are those who are in relationship with God, who have been so transformed by him that they now reflect him in their character. They have changed hearts and a distinctive holy lifestyle as they now serve the king. And this is so beautifully seen for us in Jesus as he comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, bringing new birth, forgiveness and transformation through his saving work on the cross. That's what you and I are, or at least what we're meant to be, following King Jesus joyfully and willingly, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing in his mission while adorned with Christ-like character. Uh, it's quite a wonderful picture of Christians, isn't it? that we're changed by Jesus and now share in his purposes in the world. Uh, Revelation 12 puts it this way. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before the, our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. But interestingly, the focus here in Psalm 110 is not so much on a call to become part of the troops. It's just a statement of reality. It's a divine promise. The king will have a numerous and willing army to serve him. And so we move from the king who is seated at the right hand of God until his enemies are completely conquered who also rules in the midst of his enemies through an energetic, mighty, and transformed army 
to now his final victory, which is described in the vivid language of verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Uh, In an interesting mix of metaphor from verse 1, it is now the Lord, that is Yahweh, who is at the right hand of the king, which guarantees his victory on the final day of judgment and wrath. And it's both universal in its scope and horrifying. All nations are included as the dead are heaped up from the whole earth. Uh, Verse 7 is a little confusing. He takes a drink and lifts his head high. It seems to be that the sentence, his victory is so certain and complete that the king can even have a refreshing beverage while lifting, uh, taking, lifting his head to take in the view of his triumph. And as confronting as the language might be to us, the New Testament continues this promise that one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead as he brings justice to a world in rebellion against its maker. The language is very similar to Revelation 19. In verse 11, John says this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. It's language of Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And how will he judge? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I actually think it's quite easy for us to forget this, even as Christians. Our world dismisses Jesus as irrelevant. His views and his people are archaic at best and intolerant and oppressive at worst. And we can find ourselves, I think, just drifting into a position where our view of Jesus is that he's important to us and that's enough. But Jesus, the King of kings, will return in judgment and bring justice and nothing and no one can stop him. He needs only to speak to strike down the nations. All people, including you and I, will give an account to him. And so it's to our great detriment if we forget. Uh, If you were to guess how many times the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament, what would you guess? Fewer than 10? More like 30? Even 100? Uh, I think, you know, it's used in every Christian song pretty much. You'd probably think it's at the higher end, right? But it's actually just four. Uh, And all four are here in Revelation 19. Uh, Verse 1 of Revelation 19 says this, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God, for true and just are his judgments. When Jesus comes in judgment, heaven rejoices 
as justice is served. And although it might seem shocking to us, I suspect that many in our world will too. Think of the the families of victims of major terrorist attacks. Consider the Westgate shopping mall attack in Nairobi in 2013, when 68 people were shot dead purely because they didn't know the name of Muhammad's mother by the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. Or consider the families of those who were attending church in Peshawar, Pakistan, when the Taliban suicide bombers detonated, killing 127 people. Don't you think they and many others will celebrate God's justice? Still today, there are countless horrendous crimes where there are no consequences and no accountability. God will judge, and that is good. For only God is wise and knowledgeable enough to get it right. Only he is powerful enough to actually enforce it. And so this rejoicing in justice is not the cruel laughter as people are judged and punished, but utter joy as Jesus puts an end to all evil and wipes away every tear. And so how important is that day to you? How central is it in your thinking? As David cried out for vindication and relief in Psalm 109, he is certain that this day is coming. But how much more confident can we be knowing that Jesus has already come, conquered death and promised he will return? But we've actually overlooked one of the key aspects of this psalm. Before outlining this final day of wrath in verses 5 to 7, David gives us a second promise from the Lord about the king. Uh, In verse 4 he says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The language of verse 4 is meant to highlight what a big deal this is. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And it's important to see how strange this must have sounded to God's people in the Old Testament. It might sound strange to you. You'll recall that in Israel they were made up of 12 tribes. And to be a king, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. And to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And so a king could never be a priest and vice versa. In fact, just before David, King Saul had actually sought to mix the office of king and priest and was rejected by God himself for doing it. And so this is an astonishing thing for David to say. And not to mention, the roles are completely different. A king rules uh, God's people on behalf of God, while a priest mediates to God for the people. Their roles are completely the opposite. And if all of this wasn't completely surprising and confusing, David tells us that this king will be a priest, not from Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. Like, who is that? He's this random guy that appears just in Genesis 14 and then not again until this psalm. And and it's quite a strange encounter. I think I'd encourage you to go there in Genesis 14. Uh, For context, Abraham, uh, Abraham, who's still called Abram at this point, has just uh, defeated four kings and their armies in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And he's just returned in verse 17. Then in verse 18 we read this. 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Three verses are then no mention again until this psalm, are then not again until another thousand years later in the book of Hebrews. And so what is in David's mind as he writes this verse? Well, notice uh, three things about Genesis 14. Firstly, notice that Melchizedek is king of Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. So firstly, he is the king in Jerusalem. But secondly, he is priest of God Most High. He actually has both roles of king and priest. And then thirdly, he is a king priest that is even greater than Abraham, who pays him a tithe. And so as we look at Melchizedek, David tells us in verse 4 that one day there will again be a king in Jerusalem who is also priest. Now much more could be said about Melchizedek, and Hebrews has lots to say uh, in unpacking Genesis 14 and applying it to Jesus. There are some references in your handout, and I'd encourage you to even go back and listen to podcasts, which are still available from our sermon series in Hebrews. But before we look uh, in a little bit more detail at those references, I think it's worth asking, uh, like, what difference does it make? Why does it even matter that the king is also a priest? And the answer is so important because it actually changes everything. If the king of Psalm 110 is not a priest, this is not good news for us. If he's only a king, we live in terror. He will bring justice. He will bring judgment. And that will include us. Because in the Bible, asking for justice from God is seemingly obvious, but it also is to invite his judgment. Although our default position is to think we're okay, even impressive to God, in reality, by his standards, we fall short and deserve his wrath. And so if this mighty king is going to come in great victory and bring justice, we need him to be a king priest who can spare us from that judgment. And that's what we have in Jesus. I turn to Hebrews 7 with me and let's look at what he says about this Melchizedekian priest. Uh, it starts there in verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. For such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Do you see why it matters so much that our king is a priest forever? He truly meets our needs. Uh, we love to speculate, I think, about what our greatest needs are. Currently, it's a vaccine and economic recovery. But more usually, it's self-fulfillment, a perfect life of comfort, safety, and health. But they don't last forever, and they certainly don't deal with eternity. It is the priest King Jesus alone who truly meets our needs, for he alone can offer forgiveness without compromising justice as he takes 
our punishment on himself. And this makes sense of the whole psalm as it looks forward in hope, not misery, to the coming of Jesus who judges justly. Only Jesus can have the army of verse 3, for he is a priest king who atones for sin by offering himself on the cross, achieving for us an eternal salvation and bringing the new covenant where our hearts are changed and transformed by grace to now share in his mission, being people who, sorry, bringing people to know and trust and find life in Jesus. That is our king priest. It's the salvation he gives us. And so then how then shall we respond to the priest king Jesus? Well, first and foremost, we must turn to him and find the salvation he offers. One of the strange things about uh, this whole live stream uh, change and preaching like this is I have no idea who's listening and who's watching. Yet I imagine there will be some who are either uncertain or actually might even know for sure that the coming of Jesus in judgment is not good news for you. Uh, You're not right with him. You haven't turned to him, and by his standards, you will be guilty. And if that's you, then you need to hear the words of Peter from that first passage we heard in Acts 2. As Peter preached at Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 110, and many are cut to the heart. They know their guilt before the king, and they ask the perfect question in Acts 2 verse 37, what shall we do? And then Peter answers in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Jesus in repentance. Make him the Lord of your life. Find forgiveness, a grace-filled and sure promise from the one who took the judgment you deserve on himself. There is no better No greater comfort, no surer hope than to entrust yourself to Jesus, the king who will judge and have all enemies as his footstool, but who rules now by offering forgiveness and changing hearts. As 2 Peter 3 says that the only reason his return is being delayed is so that more might come to salvation. Now is the time to turn to him. For he will come. Acts 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, But for those of us who have done that, who have turned to the king, I think there are two things we should do with this psalm. Firstly, like David, we must entrust ourselves to this king. As David longed for justice and vindication, he confidently waited. And we too must wait and trust him because he will return and bring all people to account. In the face of injustice and evil, even personal attack, we are assured and must remember that he will come. Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
as we long for justice and the end of evil, as we wait for Jesus to bring the new heaven and new earth, we trust him. And we pray as many before us have prayed those words of revelation, come Lord Jesus. And because we are assured of what he is doing and what he will do, we can throw ourselves into his service. Uh, I just read this story two weeks ago. Uh, a man named Kumar from a small village in Sri Lanka was on his way to church with his family when they were attacked and beaten for being Christian. Uh, the village has been in lockdown for over two months due to COVID-19 and many are struggling. With the help from a mission agency, Kumar and others from his church were able to provide rations for over a 100 families in the village, including those who attacked them. The pastor of the church said, Doing this gave us more opportunities to share the gospel and show the love of Christ, and now more people are eager to know the Lord. Just as there might be some who are watching right now who have not responded to Jesus and will not escape his judgment, there are certainly many who haven't and won't in our work, in our neighbourhood, in our uni, even our family. Many for whom that final day when Jesus comes will be terror and wrath as they stand before the King. And as we trust Jesus and as we wait for his certain coming, we are to be his willing troops. As his saved, redeemed and regenerate people, we are ushered into his service and share in his mission. And so we must gladly throw ourselves into telling others about the King of Kings who died in their place and will set them free. We must be adorned with Christ-like character and gracious speech, knowing that nothing is outside of our Saviour's control and he is coming. And as we let this psalm, this wonderful psalm, grow our vision of our glorious and reigning priest king, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, we will actually be sustained and able to be those people. Colossians 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our priest King Jesus. And we ask tonight that you would capture our hearts afresh with a vision of his greatness. Our priest who truly meets our needs. And Father, we ask that as you do that, you would make us his willing and joyful servants. Give us clear speech and godly character and a love for the lost. Father, please work in us that more would come to find salvation in Jesus through us. And we thank you that he will come, bringing justice, bringing an end to all evil, and he will wipe away every tear. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.